Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Michael Munger, professor of economics and political science at Duke University. He's a frequent contributor to the Library of Economics and Liberty and a frequent guest here at EconTalk. Mike, welcome back. It's great to be here. Mike, I want to talk to you today about a seemingly simple idea in economics and a very old idea, uh, which is the division of labor. Sometimes we think of it as specialization. And I want to begin with Adam Smith, who famously said, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. It's a very opaque statement. What did, he, what did he mean by that? The division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Well, this is something that I've thought about a lot, and I think a couple of years ago I thought I understood it, and now I've come to believe that I'm, I'm not so sure. There's, there's more to that statement than there seems to be, but still, let, let's, let's take a shot. Um, the division of labor for Smith was in some ways the source of the creation of the wealth of the world, and the reason was he thought competition would uh, drive people to try to come up with new ways to produce things, ways that they could produce things more cheaply. And the the biggest way that they could do that, whether they knew it or not, was what he called division of labor. You divide the process of uh, making something into a few more steps. People become good at each of the steps. They design new tools, and they can produce a lot more. The problem is that if there's only three or four of us in a little village and we produce, we, we specialize in producing just one thing, we have way too much of that. So the only thing that we can do is look for some way to try to trade that with somebody else. So without intending it, without meaning to, we start to think, how can we take this stuff that we have and trade it for the stuff that we want? And without that opportunity to trade, that specialization actually makes us poorer if if the market if the opportunities if the uh the potential buyers for our products are, are limited and small then specializing is absurd producing thousands and thousands of something that when only 20 or so units can be sold is going to be wasteful so that's that's what you're talking about and what it made me think about was where do markets come from in the first place? What really is the nature of market? We're going to talk about extent of the market. Well, when I go to the market, it means I go into a store and I buy some vegetables or I buy some groceries or maybe it's a different kind of market. Maybe it's a place where I buy clothes. That's not what Smith meant. What he meant was the extent of the zone or the area in which we can exchange things. And why do we exchange? If I have some stuff and you have some stuff, if there's a way that we can reallocate that, we can make both of us better off and keep the total amount of stuff the same. It seems almost like magic. But that's just barter. That's not what he meant. What he meant by markets was that if we change our production decisions, if I decide I'm going to stop producing everything for myself and specialize a bit, maybe hire one or two workers, I have to anticipate, like you said, that I'm going to be able to exchange that for something else. And think of all the things that go into that expectation. That is, I'm not going to be robbed taking this to market. That when I, I trade things to you, I'm going to get something that's worth it. Um, maybe there's some sort of currency. There's, there's a whole infrastructure that goes along with being able to say, I can exchange this for something that I want. So where do those expectations come from? What, when does a society go from the point where we just barter, we just exchange things, to something like a market is created where we start to produce, not for our own use and then just have something left over, but to produce things explicitly for the purpose of trading them? Yeah, that's a really nice nice way to think about it. Let, let's go back and take um, let's take your your story there and, and take an example. So let's start with self sufficiency. Let's say I'm a I'm a farmer and I have a family and I'm I've got to produce everything for myself. So I'm going to grow some food 
and I'm going to grow more than one kind of food because I don't want to just eat corn. I don't want to just eat meat. I want to have meat and potatoes and some vegetables and some other stuff, some butter to go with it. And so I'm going to have some cows or some goats and I want, um, I'm going to have to make some clothes. So I'm going to have to tan the leather from the hides of the animals that I'm that I'm slaughtering to eat. And in order to make those clothes, you're going to need needle and thread. Right. All kinds of implements for the farming, for the growing, for the harvesting, for the fashioning. And so true self-sufficiency, where I make my own needles, I make my own hammer, I make my own uh, thread, I make my own fabric for weaving uh, from the wool of the sheep that I own, we can see very quickly that, that that's going to be very difficult. Well, you're a, you're a clever guy, but clever as you are, I think you're going to do without a lot of stuff. Right. Uh, because just that short list, Just let's think about that short list. Meat and potatoes and vegetables, milk and butter, sweaters, shoes, pants. So I got cotton, probably cotton, wool, and leather for the clothes. And I got four or five crops and, and types of animals there. Whoa, that, that's going to be really tough for an individual, even with some family members to help out. A, a clan of 30 is going to have a trouble producing that. And, and part of that is simply going to be uh, the scope. And part of it's going to be the skills involved. So, for example, I might be a really good farmer, but I might not be good at forging a needle. I might be a really good uh, raiser of sheep, but I might be a really bad uh, weaver, uh, knitter uh, of sweaters. So one challenge we would have would be the scope of stuff that we'd have to know how to do. And the other is just the time constraint of all that different, all those activities. And I would look at your list of chores for the day, and there's 30 or 40 different ones. They're in different places using different tools. Some of them you only do once a year. And when you say you're, you're good at something, it's not that you're intrinsically good. Smith recognized that intrinsic skills and talents exist, but they're not that important. A lot of the skills and talents that we have, we develop by doing things over and over again. And so if you have to make a needle, it may last a while. You may have to make one every once every two years. It's going to take you a long time to do that. Switching between tasks is going to take you a long time. Now, there's a flip side to that, which is... It's pleasant. Variety is pleasant. It's nice to move among different tasks. I'm not Make... going to tell your wife you said that. <laughs> I'll ignore that. This is a family, uh, That's right. family-rated podcast. We're talking about um, tasks. A variety of activities. Tasks, we call these. So it, variety is pleasant. Uh, I, I, I don't really want to spend day after day after day forging needles or plowing the field or uh, separating the the uh, seeds from the cotton. So there's something pleasant, and, and this is part of our romance, I think, about, about primitive life, a misplaced romance, but a romance we have nonetheless, that there's something pleasant about all the different stuff that we would that would fill our day rather than the at the other extreme modern life which is more specialized where at one at one extreme you have the charlie chaplin modern times uh nightmare of you all you do all day is tighten a bolt the same bolt over and over again and you're going to do it tomorrow and next week it's a nightmare literally so what 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 you uh in this this stylized example we're creating here true there would be virtues from uh, specialization, and there are costs to diversity that we're talking about because you only make the needle every two years and you'd forget how to do it. But there is something on the other side to be said that that some of this might get dreary after a while when you specialize too much. Money can't buy happiness, but I also would like to have a little bit of leisure. Smith, after all, was talking about the wealth of nation, the source of wealth, and I think there's no question but that division of labor is going to increase wealth. It's going to increase the amount of stuff that we have dramatically, 10 times, 100 times. Whether that's better or not, I think, is something we wrestle with a lot, and it goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, um, gave two categories of goods. He talks about value in use, 
and value in exchange. And we actually still have that distinction, I think, in our own minds. Um, suppose that uh, suppose it's my wife's birthday. I'm trying to decide what to give her, and I know we need a new vacuum cleaner. So I give her a new vacuum cleaner for the, her birthday and say, here you go, honey, this is something that we really needed. She may feign being happy, but that's not something that's that, that that's not the sort of thing you give for a present. What you give for a present is something that maybe that you made yourself, or not not something that you went out and bought, um, but something that you made yourself, something that required a little bit of extra effort. So, if if your next door neighbor was ill, and you took him over uh, several bags of food from McDonald's, that's not the same as something that you fixed yourself. So the, this idea of self-sufficiency, we raise. We have a kind of romantic view, although most of us wouldn't want to live on farms if it actually came down to it. And Aristotle's idea that value in use is superior to value in exchange is something that market drive the markets drive out of us. The, the value in exchange, the, the, how much something costs to get it from someone else, who, someone else who made it, maybe you can make it more cheaply, is what ultimately we come to think of as value. But I, you're, you're right that the conflict between those two things this idea of self-sufficiency, something that I made myself, and something that I can buy in the market, it just doesn't seem as nice. Still, the question that I always want to ask, and I, I want to ask Lou Dobbs this every day, is did you make your own shoes? Shoes are just one of the very hardest things to make, yeah, but they're going to last more than a day or so. Almost nobody makes their own shoes. The question is, who should make my shoes? Somebody in my family? Somebody in my village? If not, we could make more money, couldn't we, if we kept that production in the family or in the village? The answer is no, we couldn't. It's deceptive. Yeah. Not unless you're really good at making shoes, and almost no one is. And if, if you are good at making shoes, now we're back to the original question, someone who's really good at making shoes probably should do nothing else. If they do that and they hire other people and they divide the making of shoes up into many steps, they're going to produce a whole bunch of shoes. And that means they have to go looking elsewhere to sell it. I'm going to end up buying shoes from someone that I don't know. It becomes impersonal. Well, I want to, let's hold that thought. I want to come back to that because I, I, I want to go back first to the barter example uh, and, and, the, and the self-sufficient case. But we will come back to this example of, of the, sh the shoemaker who gets really good at it and, and then goes to the impersonal exchange. But, but let's stick for a second with the farmer. I've got all this stuff I can do. And as you say, if I try to do all of it, I'm going to be really poor. I won't be able to have it, all those things. So I, even when I'm self-sufficient, I have to specialize in the sense of giving up. I can't have everything I want. I have, I have constraints. So I make some stuff, and I'm going to make the stuff I'm relatively good at and the stuff I, I like to enjoy. I'm going to have to balance those two, right? If I'm really, really good at, at – um, at making sweaters, but I don't like sweaters. That's not such a good choice for my time. So I'm going to pick a mix of these things. And your original example was, well, and I find somebody who can do some of the things I'm not doing. So I'm, I gave up on on chickens because I got enough trouble making raising those cows. And I gave up on, say, cotton because I've got enough trouble making the wool from the sheep. But I find someone who's doing those things. And so I swap with that person. I get cotton from you and you get wool from me. I get chicken from you and you get beef from me. And we're both better off because we are getting something we didn't have before. Without changing the total amount of of, of stuff that's being produced, we're both better off by exchanging. So it's a, it's a weird case. It, it's, it's sort of the minimalist case. The, the, like you say, the total amount of stuff hasn't changed. We've just rearranged it. Uh, but we're both better off. So it's zero sum in the sense of of output. We've rearranged the output, but in terms of happiness, it's not zero sum. Both of us have gained from the trade. I've gotten something more that I wanted I couldn't have before, and, and similarly with you. But the next level is the point that you mentioned earlier. I want to make sure we, we get out on the table, which is that once I know that I have the opportunity to trade with others – Suddenly, I'm not going to just pick the things in my household to do that I'm, quote, relatively good at and that I relatively enjoy. In fact, I may specialize in something I don't like at all. I might be a vegetarian for uh, just, say, taste reasons. Let's say I don't like uh, to eat meat, but I might specialize in, in raising cows 
because I'm really good at it and a lot of people really like it. So that's the Ricardian, the, coming from David Ricardo, that's the Ricardian source of specialization. I'm not, I'm not going to get better at raising cows. I could. I, I probably will, as you say, from your previous point. Yeah, but it's not necessary. Right. Even if I just am I'm no better at it than I was before, by doing that one thing that I'm relatively good at compared to others – I'm going to increase my command over the things I can enjoy. So the vegetarian who happens to own fertile pastures, we would expect to become a cattle farmer. Correct, unless they have a moral compunction against. It. That's a different. That's a separate issue, which, well, the, which I'm going to put to but the if, side. But if 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 they're the reason that they're a vegetarian is for health reasons or something else, um, the, and the 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 chicken farmer might be someone who has a dry dusty kind of place, but it's good for chickens. There's not many disease. So what would determine what I produce is what my land is best suited for. Along with the skills, I might just be better at working with large animals. But even if we all animals. had the same skills, like like you said, the, the, the Ricardian specialization might come from the fact that I have different resources. And oh, it might sure. be that I have, maybe I had specialized training. That's correct. But yeah. it's something I have that you don't, and by exploiting that, I can produce more of the thing that I'm best at producing. So that opportunity to trade is going to change everybody's choices of how they spend their time, uh, and that's going to push people towards specialization. And the Ricardian story is a story about – the differences between us, and this insight comes from a, a paper by uh, Buchanan and Yoon where they make a distinction between Ricardian and Smithian sources of specialization. So, in the in the Ricardian story, our differences are the our differences in ability, our differences in endowment of of land or all other specialized assets that that you mentioned. That's what drives specialization. But the Smith story, the one we started with, is different. And, of course, these two intermingle. But let's move on to the Smith story. And I think let's go to your shoemaker. Let's go back to your shoemaker. Uh, let's say uh, as that farmer, and I realize I can now trade, I realize, well, you know, I'm pretty good at, at making shoes. So I'm gonna, all I'm going to do is, is raise cows or perhaps even buy the leather from someone else. Uh, but let's start with raising cows. I'm going to specialize in shoemaking. I'm going to raise cows, tan the hides myself, and stitch those into shoes. And let's talk about the opportunity uh, to do that in a more specialized way when the market is larger, which is the Smithian point. Right. The, the, the Ricardian one, in a way, is more static. Um, the Smithian one is more dynamic. They're they're both right because the the Smithian one, the story might go like this. Originally, we have the two farmers. One of them has been growing cows. One has been growing chickens. Maybe they both grow some vegetables. And the one who's been growing cows notices that if he tans the skins in a particular way, it becomes really hard leather, and um, his feet have a bunch of prickles in them from cactus and stuff. So he puts them on his feet. And other people see that and say, well, can you make me a pair of those? That looks terrific. And after he makes two or three, although he had maybe no intrinsic differential ability to do this, he makes two or three. He learns some tricks. Maybe he designs a tool. He finds a curved piece of bone or a curved thorn that really works well in sewing these really thick pieces of leather together. After a couple of years of making four, five, six of these uh, pairs of shoes a year, his reputation spreads and there's um joe the guy that can make leather things for your feet and it gets mispronounced after a while and they start calling them shoes instead of joe's <laughs> so he, he he becomes the shoemaker and after a while he knows techniques that can be taught to someone else he has specialized tools he has an increase in dexterity and it could well be that one of his sons perhaps, becomes a, a cattleman and specializes in producing the cattle that they use to make the leather, and another one of his sons becomes only a shoemaker. So it's dynamic in the sense that the skills and talents that we develop, some of it's going to be intrinsic, but some of it is a consequence of these choices that we make where we acquire talents, we learn techniques, and 
we also design tools. Tools are sort of uh, a congealed idea that I can easily hand on to someone else. But learning skills might just take a long time. Well, I like your point that, that quote, what you're good at uh, isn't something you can measure by, um, uh, let's say, the uh, the National Football League Combine, where they put would-be football players through a bunch of drills, speed and strength and agility, dexterity. If you had a community of, of farmers and you, looked, you put them all in a room and said, okay, which one of these people is going to be best at making shoes? The answer might be none of them. No yeah. one's the best one. Any one of them would be would be good at it. Yeah. And as long as they put in the time to learn the techniques we're talking about, or it could be that there is a certain set of skills that are intangible that each person might have trouble identifying in advance as being in their skill set. But upon trial and error, you discover that, yeah, actually you are pretty good at it. Yeah, it's likely some of us are going to be better than others at it because we do have some innate talent or maybe an ability to focus on small motor work by our hands. But we also acquire dynamically certain skills, and over time the society develops capital in the form of tools and um, production processes. They could be chemical, and, you know, maybe I think it's something that God does or something that little fairies that live in the ground do, but I know how to tan leather using chemicals and microorganisms. And You do personally? I I didn't. I didn't want to brag. Okay. But. So, wait a minute. Yes or no? <laughs> no, no, I oh, don't. This is hypothetical. That one might. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. that, yeah that, that, that one could. That was a hobby. You don't need to understand the process in a chemical way. You just need to know that if you works, do A and yeah. B, C will result. And you wouldn't know that unless you'd ruined a bunch of leather by trying stuff that didn't work. Well, let's go, You only have to pay those fixed costs once. Let's go back to Smith's point then. I think what Smith was saying at one level, there's many layers to this onion, but I think the simplest statement that Smith was making was that if our village has four people in it and a pair of shoes lasts for a year, um, the demand for my shoes is, is four, four pairs a year. And if one of them is a woman, it might be eight. Uh, I'm sorry, that was a cheap shot. It was a cheap shot. It's, <laughs> it's I think, an empirically true statement yeah. on average um, that, that the demand for shoes differs by sex. I think that is a true statement. Uh, but you're on thin ice again, Mike. You got to be careful here. I'm I'm just going to have to go home. Yeah, you're you're going to get in big trouble. You're going <laughs> to cause a lot a lot of uh, angry mail for us here. But the if, if the demand is four or even eight pairs. Um, there just isn't enough scope for me to spend much time and the, develop those tools and use those tools and pay for those tools if I can buy them if I'm only making four or eight pairs of shoes a year. But if I'm making – if there are 100,000 people in my village who want to make shoes, even if I spend 25 hours a day at shoe making, I might not be able to do it, and I'm going to look for ways to expand my product productive capacity and lower my cost. This is a really key point. There's at least two ways that I might do that. I'm a shoe artisan, and so I make shoes from start to finish. I cut the leather. I have these lasts. I put it on the last, which is a shoemaking mold, um, and then I, I do all the sewing. I hammer nails into the heel, and then I fit the shoe. I can do all those things. Now, what I might do is hire three or four more people who do all that themselves. Each of them make this, makes the shoe from start to finish. And that's basically linear. That's what economists would call linear. If I have four people instead of one, I make four times as many shoes. And I have four times the cost because I've got to pay four workers now instead of just one. But I might notice that one of my guys is really good at sewing, and one's really good at making heels and hammering the nails into the heels to to keep them on. So I say, okay, you guys sit at different ends of this table, and you... All day long, sew the uh, different parts of the shoe together. And you, at the other end, all you're going to do is start hammering the heels on. And instead of just making four times as many, we might make 16 or 20 or 100 times as many shoes. Well, part of the reason for that, and I just want to put a footnote to your your example, uh, because you you keep creeping in with some Ricardian uh, features to the Smith story. Mm -hmm. You said, well, there might be... One person's really good at sewing, and another good at cutting the leather. Another person's good at the heels. But even if Smith's point was that even if 
they're all equally good at it. No, no one's particularly particularly good at any one feature of it. You could get more output by having the person with the shoes, excuse me, with the heels, have that special tool uh, to just make the heels all day long. Uh, which wouldn't be worth it if you were this uh, artisan making your own shoes from start to from scratch to finish, whereas uh, from start to finish, and and that therefore, if you're going to sell one shoe a year, you may as well just make it yourself. If you're going to sell a thousand shoes a year, you might hire a few people to help you. If you're going to sell a million shoes a year, you build a factory. And you break down the process. I'm not saying this very well. I'm having trouble understanding it myself. What what Smith was fundamentally saying was that when your output's large enough, you can exploit economies of scale, which is just another piece of jargon to explain what I'm trying to say, by adding capital to that that wouldn't be worth adding if you were only making a few. And then the, the creative spark, the genius was – from Smith was to recognize that it would have this advantage even if you didn't have the Ricardian difference. But if we go back to our example where we just have a farmer who says, okay, what am I going to do now? I have four artisans who make shoes from start to finish. I think it's asking too much of the human mind to say, I recognize that if I divide this into four different tasks and have each of them specialize, then I'll get more than four times as much output. So what likely happened was, at first, people tried to take advantage of Ricardian difference, Ricardian specialization. You're good at this, you're good at this. But what happened unexpectedly, and it took the genius of Smith to recognize how important it was, and I think we still don't fully understand it today, there's something more than that. And when you said economies of scale, what that means is, if I have four times as much resources, I get way more than four times as much output, and you don't need Ricardian specialization to take that happen, and that to make that happen, and that that's almost a miracle. That that's something very surprising. It's not something you might expect. It's very close to a free lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, yeah. it's the source of increase in wealth that I think people who take a Marxist or purely materialist kind of perspective on output, where you know labor goes in, then you have labor value, and the result is wealth, you're not going to get that from any other kind of view except Smith's. And that, that's why I, I'm not sure that he gets enough credit. I think it's interesting we're turning back towards division of labor as being uh, an important source of the increase of the wealth, the physical um, wealth of the world. Well, let me take us down a, a path that that applies this in um, in, a, in a peculiar way, and see what you think of this story. Have you ever been to Williamsburg? I have. Okay, Williamsburg is a colonial town. It's a um, it's a it's an amusement park for historians, right? It's a place. I was there a few weeks ago with, with my with my family, and I think they're currently. They've created Williamsburg right now to be a, the equivalent of, I think, 1774. So when you walk through the town, you're experiencing a stylized version of what life was like in 1774 in this village. It's a pretty big village, but it's still a village. It's not a town. It's not a city. It's not anything that we would call a city by modern standards. Yeah, you could walk across it in 10 minutes. Easy. Yep, whole thing. But one thing I was struck by being an economist and thinking about the division of labor, was there's quite a bit of specialization there, and people are really poor. <laughs> uh, so here's the way it works. Uh, there's a shoemaker. There's a blacksmith. There is a um, horse guy. There's everybody's got a task. There's a there's printer. A cooper to make there's barrels. a cooper for barrels. Yep. There's a printer who puts out the daily newspaper. There's a wig seller, a wig maker for the the rich folks. There's a uh, saddle maker. So everybody's specialized. They all have these tasks. And again, we have this romance about these this artisan-like activity. And I walked into the shoemaker store thinking about Adam Smith and are actually anticipating our conversation, not explicit, not not intending to. And I asked the guy two things. One, I asked him was he was just he was sewing something, and I asked him. If uh, he had helpers 
or whether he made all the shoes from start to finish. And he said, well, sometimes he has somebody who just does the stitching. So even within the specialization of Shoemaker, there was some of this Smithian or Ricardian specialization within the task. I also asked him how many shoes he could make a day or a week or a year. And the answer was, I don't remember the exact number. That isn't what's important. What's interesting is, is that he cannot supply enough shoes to fulfill the demand for the actors of Williamsburg today. In other words, all the people in Williamsburg are walking around, the Cooper and the Cooks and the wig maker and the, the saddle maker and the all the, the jailer, all these other folks, they're all wearing 1770 shoes. They're not allowed to go down and pick up a few Nikes or some Timberlands or whatever. They've got to wear these authentic-looking shoes made by the shoemaker. Um, that shoemaker, shoemaker can't fulfill the demand. He's not productive enough. And when you think of what that means, one of, one of the things you start to see is that why they're poor. Um, when you go into the saddle maker's shop, he talks about how only the rich people could buy the saddles because, well, one, the poor people couldn't – the average person couldn't afford a horse, let alone a saddle. There would be no purpose for a saddle if you didn't have a horse. Most people walked around. They couldn't – if they had to get out of town, they went by foot and took a long time. They didn't have – from these specialized tasks, they didn't generate enough wealth to buy a, to buy a horse, most of them. So you start thinking about why is that? Why is that? Why was the shoemaker relatively – poor? And the answer was the shoemaker's relatively poor because he doesn't have enough capital. His ability to fulfill, he can't even fulfill the demand for, for all the citizens of Williamsburg. So you'd, you'd pro- in, in the real town, they'd have two shoemakers mm-hmm. or three. Well, people would also wear their shoes a long time and sew up holes and because, like you said, they're poor. Because And the shoes are relatively expensive. Yeah. But, but the puzzle would be, how do you go from that world to our world where you can make a few people can make millions of shoes, and the, the simple, obvious answer is they've got more tools to work with. It's one thing to have a last and a big needle and a hammer and and other things to work the leather with. What you really want, though, is a shoe factory. Well, but what happens when you have a shoe factory? At, at some point, if we have a bunch of individuals making shoes and they take advantage of division of labor, there's a lot of people employed making shoes. But then we realize that a lot of these things can be automated. And it, that's capital. That takes capital. It dramatically increases the productivity of each worker, 10 times or 100 times. What does that cause? Unemployment. <laughs> yeah, sure. And unemployment is not caused by shipping our jobs overseas. Unemployment is caused by increases in productivity. Right. All of a sudden, the shoe factory doesn't need – you don't need to have a 1,000 – 100,000 people all over America making a pair of shoes, you can have a few people making 100,000 pairs. They're very specialized work. They know how to repair machines. It, it, it's very high-paid work. Now, but, you, might think, you might think, well, you lose the jobs in the shoe factory, but you gain the jobs making the equipment in the, uh, that, that, that the shoe factory uses. But that's not really the story. The real story is you get to have more stuff. You get to have – instead of just having shoes and meat and pants and chicken, you got shoes and iPods and electric light well, and, and a I, thousand things that you wouldn't have. I looked at the price of shoes about a year ago, the, the, the time series, the real price of shoes. And this is without even worrying about quantity. But you the, mean quality? Uh, forgive me. Yes, quality. Yeah. I, I'm not worried about how good the shoes are. But if you look at a pair of boots, of, of kind of Timberland boots or some other boots that you might buy at Kmart or Target, they're about 5% of the price of a pair of boots in 1800 Measured by how long a person, the average person has to work to, to buy them, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So a so, 20-fold decrease in cost. Yeah, and, and the reason is that no one has to touch them. Now, some, you know, the, the the actual price was a little bit higher um, in 1800, but if you adjust for inflation, that's where most of it comes. So the amount of money that I would have to spend to buy a pair of boots would buy a lot in 1800, a lot of other stuff. Or as you put it, I would have to work several days in order to get more than several days, weeks, in order to get the, the price of a new pair of boots. Whereas now most people earn enough to to buy a pair of really quite 
good boots in less than a day. In a few hours, yeah. But far, far fewer people as a proportion of the population are employed in making boots. They're doing something else. That's a very deep thing. I, I, I puzzle over the deepness and the simplicity of it. And one way to think about the deepness of it is this. So, so you have to work a few hours today to, to get a pair of boots compared to, say, maybe a few days or weeks in, in 1800. And yet, you don't know anything about boots. What a, what a miraculous thing that – what a marvelous, wondrous thing that is. You know less about boots as the buyer of a boot than the guy in 1800. The guy in 1800 probably knew a lot more about how a boot got fashioned than you or You or I know nothing about it, I presume. I, I, I certainly know nothing about it. I've never it. been in a shoemaking factory or a boot-making factory. It, I know there's a bunch of equipment there, but I know nothing about it, wouldn't know how to do it in a in 100 years, literally. Mm-hmm. And yet, so our knowledge has become so specialized, and yet despite that ignorance about boots, they're easier to get. It's so it isn't paradoxical. Despite. It yeah, isn't right. despite. It's because. It's actually because. <laughs> yeah. And that's that we're we're getting closer now to the impersonal point. Yeah, let's let's move to that. That's a great. That's a good segue. The and I think it, it's not obvious that in terms of happiness, this is an improvement. It, you you could argue that making things more impersonal, me having less knowledge of where something comes from. You know, I, I don't I don't go to my shoemaker and say, "Here's my size," and he says, "Well, yeah, I'm going to make you a pair of boots. They'll be done in five days." I look in the window three days later, and he's working away on them, and I'm thinking, those are my boots. That's my friend John making my boots. And he was over at, at my house when my when my daughter was born, and, and I helped him out in that snowstorm with his with his uh, when his uh, cow got stranded and in then, the ice. I'm a butcher. He comes in and buys meat from me. So we're, we, we really have a strong community bond. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I, it, it actually is. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not going to deny that it is. There, there's something to that. But now when I go in to Walmart, I don't know where those boots came from. And you maybe naughty, I don't care. You, you naughty man. You. <laughs> <laughs> you go into Walmart? What are you thinking? Well, but think, think what happens when I go into Walmart. <laughs> the first thing I get is a greeter to personalize the experience. Now, admittedly, I have, you know, I, I sort of want my experiences to be personalized. I was at the airport the other day and they were having to pat people down. So I went through security four times. <laughs> the last time they said, "No, get get out of here." You've, we've been through. Um, well, so I go. I, I I talk to the greeter, and he's really glad to see me. Although he's not even doesn't even know who I am, but he's paid. And he, honestly, the greeters are people who like people. They're not faking it. They enjoy seeing other people. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you today. Here's a cart. I go back. I look at a pair of boots, and at Walmart. There aren't any people to help you with the boots. You have to pick them out. Hopefully, you're wearing socks. You, 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 uh, I think it's more hopefully the person who who tried on your pair before you was wearing socks. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, well, yeah, that, that's right. I, I I bring my socks. I'm a good citizen. I try on several pairs. I pick one out, and it's seventeen, eighteen, twenty dollars for a pretty fine pair of boots or um, work boots, steel toed, for forty dollars. Incredibly cheap. And I walk up and I go through the self-serve checkout at Walmart. The only person that I've talked to is the greeter, who's someone's grandpa, who his wife told him to get out of the house, so he got a job as a greeter at Walmart. I never interact with another human being. And I have purchased a pair of shoes that was made in another country, probably. A bunch of strangers. And after it was made by a bunch of strangers, and maybe none of them touched it because it went into a box, it was then put on a pallet, shrink-wrapped, and put into a container box, was transshipped at a number of different transportation points, and was never touched except by machines. And this pleases me no end because mostly I want to choose. Right, but you do – I love this point. You've lost something, which is the – this – emotional connection with the former of the shoes, the fashioner of the shoes, John in the window that you walk by watching him work on your shoes, and you've gained something in return, which is uh, an incredibly inexpensive uh, pair of shoes. But no one consulted me about that. We never made a decision that that's the sort of – we wanted Society B instead of Society A. It just happened because of the inexorable progress of division of labor. Well, I'm going to disagree with that a little bit. 
it's true that it's unplanned. It's true that that no one person decided let's move to this less personal and 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 footnote by the way, it's important to add that John could be a jerk. Uh, could hate your guts because you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan and he deliberately makes your shoes really poorly and you just have to suck it up and wear them anyway. So I, I don't want to over-romanticize the personalized exchange because it has some aspects of it that are quite – that are that can be very troublesome. Sure. Um, but I, I agree with you that no one decided it, but uh, Kevin Kelly, who was uh, a recent guest on Econ Talk – made the, a point that we talked about on the show about how easy it is to go back into the past. It's very hard to go into the future. The closest thing you can get to that is to go into a city. If you want to go back into a, the past, though, you can time travel. You can go and live in, uh, for example, uh, in 19th century America by moving to Pennsylvania and becoming uh, Amish and giving uh, rest- constraining yourself away from certain technologies. Uh, you can go live in the Amazon and live in a very primitive style if you want. Uh, the kibbutzes of Israel are dying, but if you wanted to, I'm sure you could start a kibbutz-like or a communal experience here in the United States where you only traded with the people around you. And so if you find the Walmart experience sufficiently unpleasant, you can live very poorly but very communally if you choose to. Most people don't choose to. Well, so we, we we need to force them to. We need to get the government <laughs> to close down those big box stores that are taking yeah. away jobs from all these artisans. Yeah, that's right. And we need more personal. Uh, we, I, we need to know the people who grew our food. And um, you know, one of the interesting aspects of this uh, is this issue of, of trade only trading with people you agree with, or only trading with people that you think are good human beings, uh-huh. and boycotting everyone else. They have to be morally correct. Morally correct, religiously correct, uh, culturally correct. Read I didn't the, want to say politically correct. Politically, I'll Duke. say it. Politically correct. Thank you. Could be. All those things uh, have a certain appeal, right? I mean, you might find that those shoes that were made for you at, at, at Walmart come out of a factory uh, in, uh, let's say, uh, Indonesia, mm-hmm. where the guy who runs the factory is he's kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. You know? And he, it, he pays 70 cents an hour. That's, forget that part. He may go home and he's a lousy husband. He's a horrible father. Uh, yeah, I would have no way of knowing that. You That's have right. no way of knowing it. And one view says, That's a good point. One view says, you know, you should make sure. Yeah, you have an obligation to. You should find out whether that person is a good person or not. And of course, unfortunately, we often forget the flip side of that, which is, well, if if I've got an obligation to make sure the people I buy from are good human beings. Doesn't the seller have an obligation to make sure I'm a good human being? So, you know, maybe I wouldn't make the cut. Maybe when I'd walk into the store and say, you know, I've checked you out. I think you give enough to charity. I notice you spend a lot of quality time with your kids. So I'm going to buy your boots. And he says, yeah, but you're a lousy dad. And well, I'm not... yeah, what standard might he use? You're yeah. Jewish. I'm Southern. We might not get to buy stuff. Correct. It could be a nightmare. Uh, that attitude that says only buy and sell with people who who are above your who uh, achieve a certain standard of of morality is a very interesting way to live your life, and it's clearly a very poor way to live your life. One of the lessons of what we're saying today is that if you only trade with people you know, or if you only trade with people you like, or at the extreme, you only trade with people you know and like. You will be very poor because it means you will only trade with a few people. The informational constraints of discover just the information forget finding enough people who are you think are good enough. Just discovering whether they're good or not is enormously expensive. So one of Smith's insights, the one that we've been sort of getting to, is that by trading with strangers and keeping them that way, saying, I'm not gonna look into your personal life. All I'm gonna look at is your boots. <laughs> and if they're good enough, I'm going to pay for them. If I think they're a value that's worth spending money on, I'm going to buy them. And if not, I'm not going to buy them. That attitude produces wealth because it allows specialization and it allows that specialization through the fact that if the market is large enough, if I can trade with enough people, if I can sell my skills to a wide enough range of folks, it becomes economical for me to add capital and insight and innovation that would never be worth it if I'm an artisan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and other people will figure out ways of getting things to market more cheaply because the 
every every step that we take that has a kind of personal touch raises cost. And maybe we what do like you mean? that. Give me an example. Well, um, if I, I guess the way I think of it is if I go to um, a, a, a hardware store and I'm asking for advice and I they, they give me some advice about this is the way you can uh, grow grass. And so I, I want particular chemicals or something for, for my grass. That's a service that I might actually want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I might choose to go, if, if I value that enough, I'll go to that hardware store and buy stuff there instead of going to the large Home Depot. But if instead I have, um, I want to know the person who made the uh, fertilizer, then I'm going to have to travel farther, and it's not going to be available in a store near me, or if it is, then I, maybe it's, it's from their family, um, insisting that I know who made it instead of just having the information be something that's detached and can be provided as a service is going to cost me a lot more. I really like that recommendation idea, the information service part of it, because uh-huh. it made me think of something I never thought about. You know how people romanticize um, the independent seller? Like you're doing right now, the uh-huh. hardware store. I used to. I've had a lot of hardware stores. Being an inept person, <laughs> I, I really do value that advice. Yeah. And I also think it's moral. Which end? Which end of this tool do I use? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm at a I'm at a very basic level. <laughs> so, and I also think it's important, by the way, as a moral issue, when I get the advice to shop there as well, rather uh-huh. than take the advice for free and then go, uh, go use it at the cheaper store. I think uh-huh. that I, it should. It's hard for them to package those things together. But I think they should be packaged together. So I will shop at the the depart at the hardware store with the folksy, uh, brilliant staff, uh-huh. even though it's expensive, because I value that knowledge and I feel it's important to pay for it mm-hmm. and not just free ride on it. Mm-hmm. So I understand that. Now, think about the big box phenomenon. Uh, we got the hardware stores where you know the owner again and in the, the independent hardware store is a genius. And really can help me with all kinds of things, but his stuff's more expensive compared to the Home Depot or Lowe's where the service is mediocre. Sometimes it's okay, but a lot of times it's not as good as that independent guy. Yeah. Then we've got the bookstore. People uh, decry Barnes and Noble and Borders because they say, you know, it's so impersonal. You know, there's a there's a, a 16 year old kid behind the counter who knows nothing about books. Mm-hmm. It's so much better when you had that independent bookseller on the corner. And, you, and what about Amazon that has no stores at all? Well, I was going to get to that. that. That's my next level. But let's stick with, with Barnes and Noble versus the corner bookstore. Uh-huh. At Barnes and Noble, you know, it's you can't nobody there really loves books. You can't interact with the people. Whereas, you know, in the old days, you'd go down to the corner. And, and that person would really they, – They've read the book. They've read the book. book. They, they can tell you. And they get to know you, and they know what you like. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. So my answer to that's always been, oh, that's a good point. That there is a, Something's lost there when we go to Barnes & Noble, but the thing that's gained is 100,000 books on the shelf versus 5,000. And 100,000 books, I'm willing to give up a little bit of quality of advice for, for the opportunity to browse more widely. Mm-hmm. But, I, but now I'm going to go to Amazon. Amazon, you get a million books, more than a million. I don't know how many they have. Do you have any idea? A bunch, a whole bunch. A whole lot. But look at the advice function. The advice function has become so impersonal that it's 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 robotic, right? There's there's a uh, they generate recommendations for you based on an algorithm of what you've bought, what people who bought what you bought also bought, and you get recommendations. And you know what? I really like those. I love that. I love going to iTunes. It, I love going to Amazon. It's helpful. It's not a person. We, it's we've become, detached the information from right? the person. But it re- works. It's an important service. And it works really well. Mm-hmm. And if the quirky, uh, eccentric owner, he might be more charming than the Amazon recommendation. And he also might be more irritable than the Amazon yeah. recommendation. But here's the punchline. I don't care how smart he is. He doesn't know what... Amazon's readership knows. So even though we've lost something in the human touch, the quality of the advice is many times greater for these robotic 
algorithm-driven recommendations than the more human, personal thing that we used to rely on. I think as a result, I, I buy a lot more books. Yeah, yeah, no I doubt about to. it. <laughs> and you like, and you're more likely to like them. Oh, I'm, yeah, I, I buy books, and I'm, I'm not disappointed with, with the ones that I get. Sure. Well, but then the overall employment and the number that we may be losing something about the from the the number of different firms, because there's always the seen and the unseen, as as Bastiat said. What is it that we're losing that we don't notice? So I in I I, I looked a bit in uh, Adam Smith's Pin Factory example. I looked at what happened to the number of firms the, of pin manufacturing firms. Expl- explain the example. For the well, in the, in the the in the pin factory with a, that, that when Adam Smith talked about the division of labor, he said that um, he actually he was an empiricist. He went and observed people making pins, and he he thought that there were about eighteen separate steps in the manufacture of pins. And I've always assumed he chose a pin for the same reason that in I pencil Leonard Reed chose a pencil, which is another example of specialization. Yeah, yeah I pencil. It's a incredibly simple. Product, you'd think that a pen. Uh, how how specialized could you be? Yep. It, it, you know? it just can't be very specialized. But it is. So well, give... but he, the, the the pin factory is what made him. It, it's in that context that he said division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, and so it turns out that the number of steps, the the appropriate number of steps in the pin making process, actually depends on transportation costs and how many other people you can sell your pin to because the more steps you have the more people you employ but that means you have qualitatively more pins to sell so if the market's large if the physical extent of the market is large then the appropriate number of steps in the pin making process becomes larger it's not 18 it might be even larger than that 1776 around the time that um, Smith was writing, there were hundreds and hundreds of pin factories. By 1820, there were 11 pin factories in the city of Gloucester and maybe another 20 in the city of Birmingham. Almost all pin uh, production in England was concentrated in those two cities, Gloucester and Birmingham. By 1940, there were 12. And by 1960, there were two pin-making factories. But the total number of pins produced had gone up by 10 times just between 1940 and 1960. And the number of people presumably in The number those... of employment was a hundred. Way down, one hundred. Yeah, one, 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 one over one hundred. So one percent. Yeah. And so what does that cause? One thing it causes is unemployment. There's a bunch of unemployed pin makers. Well, yeah, yeah, although let's, let's use the word uh, a little more precisely. They're only briefly unemployed. Well, they might not be unemployed at all. I think the the it depends how fast the technological improvements take place. What I'm gonna I'm gonna be a stickler here, and not a stigler. <laughs> Although he'd say the same thing. Yeah, George Stigler, who who loved Adam Smith and wrote a paper called "The Division of Labor is Limited yeah. by the Extent of the Market." Yeah, it's pretty good if you can take your titles just from chapters. <laughs> yeah, that's a good strategy. But I'm going to be a stickler here, not a stickler. I'm going to be a stickler and say what technology does in these situations, this kind of specialization, it, it reduces the number of opportunities in that field for working. It may also cause unemployment, meaning people who suddenly find themselves out of work and having to find new jobs. But it it, it certainly reduces the number of job opportunities that are available. Now – in producing that thing. In producing that thing. And that's the lesson I want to make sure our listeners understand because th- that thing has gotten smaller, so it makes it sound like, oh my gosh, there's there's less available in, in, in my in fewer jobs. In my um in the my next book I use the example of musical chairs. Uh-huh. Uh you know, it's like, oh my gosh, there are fewer chairs. Yeah, there doesn't we got the extra person we, here. We got get to sit. the same number of people and now there's no place to sit. But that isn't what happens. Although it can be what happens in the in the shortest run when technology changes quickly, but in a, a little bit longer time, what happens is that because the pins are so much cheaper, people have more resources to spend on other things, and new employment opportunities get created in all those other areas. So, I mean, this is the most basic and profound example of, of economic 
fallacy and truth that, that's constantly, I think, people confuse. And knowing that you would be my friend Stickler Boy, I had tried to use that example so I could ask you this next question. And I know you know the answer, but I'll see if you, you, you'll play along. What nation in the world lost the most manufacturing jobs between 1990 and 2000? So the, the, the nation in all the world that lost the most manufacturing jobs between 1990 and 2000? I do know the answer. Uh, uh, the, the formal answer is China, correct? The, uh, the answer is China, the, the place that Lou Dobbs says we're, we're shipping all of our jobs to. Right. According to the data, which I, I'm, I have to quibble with you a little bit. I'm not going to be a stickler. I'm going to be a quibbler. <laughs> I think the, the You have so many different masks. I have a lot of hats. Yeah. St- stickler, quibbler. Uh, but the the... It's hard to measure uh, these things, and Chinese data, I think, are somewhat uh, uncertain. But the idea here is that is that certain types of jobs in China can go down because of the application of technology, right? Increased productivity. You go from a bunch of people using artisanal labor, hammering away or using a, a, a sewing needle, to one-tenth that many people in a large modern factory monitoring machines. And that's, now, all those people go and do something else. You're right. right to quibble. But from the perspective, the static perspective, that some people in America who are against trade and who are against globalization take, that's how many jobs have we lost. That's what happens when one factory closes and another one that's more productive opens. Or when, yeah, or when one factory closes because another has expanded so much, it's put yeah. that one out of business, and the expanded opportunities in the bigger factory are not the same number as the lost opportunities in the factory. So you're, you're right to quibble. It's just not true that those jobs are lost. There are just fewer opportunities in that particular area. And it's, yeah. it's my favorite example probably of the scene and the unseen, the boss job point, which is this point that you see the jobs that aren't there anymore – you don't notice that they are they are connected to the jobs that are created elsewhere um, that have uh, because we have more wealth and there's just there's just so many examples of this in our lives. I I love the point that you're making about uh, outsourcing versus technology. Um, I mean, I took a trip yesterday. I came back and you go and you can pay for your parking in advance. Yeah, you can get in the lane. Uh, you can buy a device that you can put on your windshield so that your toll on the on the turnpike gets billed to you automatically. Mm-hmm. Or you think it's, here's here's three level three levels of of technology. You hand a quarter to a person in a booth. Yeah, after waiting in line twenty minutes to do it. That's number one. Number two, you drop the quarter into a box that catches the quarter, and there's no person, but there's this thing that. That catches your quarter. The you third, probably, you probably only waited ten minutes in line for that, and the it third, goes too faster. The third is you don't wait at all. Mm-hmm. You just scoot through because the, the Easy Pass reads your thing mm-hmm. on the windshield. Now, Easy Pass, which is the the windshield reader, that's taken away jobs from people standing in toll booths. Mm-hmm. But that's a better world. Well, it's, maybe it's a better world. The the Connecticut Turnpike took away all of its toll booths, and they they used to be a quarter, and they had toll booth takers. They did a study and found that nearly a third of all the toll receipts were going to pay the toll booth takers, the the the, the people there who were taking the money because sure. they were pretty highly paid. Now they lost that job; they had to go do something else. But the next generation of people didn't say, "Okay." I I would like to be a toll booth taker someday. So even if you think that people who lose their jobs, it's hard on them, they have to go find something else, maybe you could argue society owes them some sort of compensation or a way of making sure they find a new job. The next generation of people doesn't want to be a buggy whip manufacturer, doesn't want to be something that we shouldn't be doing anyway. Nobody dreams of those things. They're they're not where we want to... They're not where we want to go, but as you say, there might be people who want to go there because right now that's their best alternative, and, yeah. and that's a that's a reality that has both political and economic consequences. Well, preserving it artificially makes things worse, not better. That's for sure. Um, but it, 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 it's everywhere. If you look around you, this maybe is our we're running we're almost out of time. It, it's an interesting uh, way to think about this as a punchline for our conversation. Look around you, and you'll see that. In every business, there's a relentless attempt to strip labor out of the process mm-hmm. and to make it less personal, as mm-hmm. you say. And we 
those things are sometimes sad and sometimes they're hard on the people involved. But when you take the longer perspective, you see how the world is transformed. And I don't want people to leave this podcast thinking that that our punchline is that specialization creates wealth and wealth is good. Well, it's specialization creates wealth and wealth is good because it lets us live longer and richer lives where richer just isn't isn't only about money. Yeah, it's choices. We also get to make more choices. And we and we get to have the quality of our lives is radically different. So when you look around you and you see the the use of technology to replace people, there's still always jobs that are created elsewhere for the new things we want to enjoy with our with our expanded wealth. But as a result of that wealth, we can afford more health care, we can afford more time with our kids, our grandparents. It's it's not just about the money. It, it, it's true. It's about it's about the quality of life. It's about the improvement in what we can aspire to as human beings. And I don't think we connect that enough to this sort of very simple division of labor that the genius of Smith recognized. My guest today has been Michael Munger of Duke University. Michael, thanks for joining us. It was really nice to be here. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <music>